don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in front of you, in the chair, uh, in the chair in front of you, in the bottom, and there you can turn to page 869 and uh, follow along. As we look at this story of the Good Samaritan and the question that the this Samaritan, not the Samaritan, this lawyer asks is, who is my neighbor? And especially on this, um, on this uh, <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday, uh, just who is your neighbor? Who are you inviting over? Uh, who are you going to be watching the Super Bowl with? And I know that some of you guys got invitations to do two different parties, but I think it's a good time to think about who is our neighbor. And as Jesus tells this story, as we've looked at these parables, there's a slant that comes um, in all of his parables to the people that are listening. And we'll see that slant come in uh, through the telling of this good Samaritan that Jesus tells to the lawyer. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories that engage us, um, but also have a certain meaning for us to be able to take away with, to be challenged by, to be encouraged, to live a life that is uh, absolutely different from the world around us. And so, Father, I pray that as we engage this question, who is my neighbor? Lord, speak to us, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. So that, Lord, we might be followers of Christ who desire to be good neighbors. We thank you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just see a show of hands. Who has seen the docu documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, a film about Fred Rogers. Uh, it's an absolutely wonderful documentary. And I challenge you to watch it and not and have dry eyes by the end of it. It's a fascinating film that follows Fred Rogers' story. And one particular story that just broke me in one sense was the story of how in the, in the 60s, obviously, there was a lot of segregation, right? And there would be these segregated hotel owners 
where they would see black and white children and adults in one pool. And you would see these owners come, and there was news footage of these owners dumping acid and chlorine and different kind of chemicals into the pool to sort of say, we need to sanitize this, now get out, so that we could continue to stay as just one white segregated pool. Now, Fred Rogers, knowing this, and that footage on the news sort of becoming this sort of uh, uh, iconic footage that everyone remembered, he decided to film one of his episodes in 1969 with him doing what he usually does, right? He opens the door, he comes in, but instead, instead of putting on his cardigan, he looks into the camera and says, it's a hot day. Let's go, let's cool down, and let's go into a pool. So what he does is he brings out these little kid-sized pools into the front yard, pours water into it, and sticks his feet in. And as he's sitting there, Officer Clemens, African-American policeman that is, and it was actually only a few episodes in that he was hired to play this role, comes in and Fred Rogers invites him into this pool. And there's this shot, if you watch it, of a few seconds of their feet, of black feet, black feet and white feet, in this pool together. And as people looked at that, probably in, in implicit ways, what Fred Rogers was doing was being absolutely subversive in showing the world and children what it means to be a good neighbor. And here in this story this morning that Jesus tells, he responds to this lawyer asking, who is my neighbor? And rather than just answering it, he tells a story as only Jesus could. But as we look at this, we first have to kind of look at the context, and we're just going to go through this like we've been doing the past two weeks, verse by verse, and unfolding and unpacking what Jesus is doing as he answers this question, who is my neighbor? Start in verse 25, and this kind of gives us the context of the story. So a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now stop there. When we hear the word lawyer, we hear sort of the lawyers in our time, right? But a lawyer in that period was a scribe who understood the Torah inside and out. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He would have been an expert in the law, in the Torah. And so here, as the Pharisees would in Jesus' ministry, he decided to put Jesus to the test. And it says that, right? He put him to the test. Why? Because Jesus was like no other rabbi. He was this rabbi that would spend time with prostitutes, with tax collectors, the unclean, the sinners of that time. And so he comes to him with this question, right? And follow along in verse 26. He said to him, or no, teacher, what shall I do to inherit, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus in verse 26, as only Jesus does, answers a question with what? A question. And he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 27, and he answered, and this is a lawyer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer knew the Jewish law. It wasn't a surprise that he was able to go right to Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, and quote what was the law. This encompassed everything. To love God and to love your neighbor. And he, and he spits it out. But what's so fascinating in verse 28, what does, what does Jesus say? He says, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This lawyer knew the right answer. But this wasn't some theory to be espoused, but this was supposed to be practiced and to be adopted in one's life. That's why Jesus says, well, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall surely live. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, what's fascinating about this lawyer is that after answering him correctly and Jesus saying, you have answered correctly, do likewise, and you will live. This lawyer could have left. He would have gotten what he wanted, tried tricking him and putting him to the test. He failed, but he got the right answer. He could have felt justified, but he didn't, right? We read that he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked him, who is my neighbor? Now, why is he asking that? For a, for a Jewish man and a lawyer, as he looked upon this law to love God and love neighbor, the neighbor would have been a fellow Jew. It would have been someone that, he was, it, that was easy to love, someone that was part of their culture and part of their ethnicity and part of their, their group. It would have been people that would sort of fit into your echo chamber. That would have been the appropriate response for who is your neighbor. It is your friend. It is your family sometimes. It is those that you get along with. And here, he wanted to feel good about himself. It wasn't good enough for him to just answer the question of love God and love neighbor. He wanted to be able to feel gratified by this rabbi, Jesus, and to be able to say, this is your neighbor, and you are doing it. Good job. Go. Feel self-righteous about you keeping the law. But Jesus had other ideas. And as this lawyer who knew the law inside and out, asking this question, who is my neighbor, he goes into this story, Jesus does, and answers him. And this is what I want to look at as we look at this question, who is my neighbor? In verse 30, Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now just to kind of get the landscape of what Jesus is talking about, this would have been the 17 mile road that everyone knew about as Jesus tells the story. This is a 17-mile road that was descending from 3,000 feet sea level, above sea level to 1,000 feet below sea level. So this is a 4,000-foot descent over 17 miles. But this area 
that you would walk was filled with rocks, caves, cliffs. It was a dangerous road. And it actually became known as the bloody way. Why? Because thieves, robbers, they would hide in the caverns and in these caves where you couldn't be seen. And they would come out. And as Jesus describes, there's this man who is jumped, beaten, left half dead, stripped of everything and gone. Now what's worth noting in this story though is that in Jesus' description, he was, the way you could tell who someone was identified with in their ethnicity is what you actually wore. But here this man is stripped of everything. And what Jesus is saying is, as we think about this man that is left half beaten dead, we actually see that he was a mere human being in need. It's not about what ethnicity he was, what social group he was a part of, what, how rich or how poor he was. This was literally just a man who was in desperate need of mercy. But for a fellow Jew in that period to listen to this story, they would assume it was a Jewish man. And that's worth noting. That as Jesus tells the story, though Jesus describes this man as someone that you could not identify with and what class he belonged to or what ethnic group he belonged to, for the Jewish here and for this lawyer, they would assume he was a Jewish man. Now, keep going here. In verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on by on the other side. Stop there. What we see here is a priest, and a Levite would be like, you know, like a rookie priest. You could kind of say it if I, if I were to just be sort of summarize that. So here were these religious, moral people that were looked up to in society, in the Jewish culture. And what happens is that they considered this man not a neighbor, right? Why? Because there was too much at risk. It was time-consuming, expensive, it was shaming. And the reason it's shaming was because for a priest or a Levite, if this man was actually dead, and if they grabbed or if they lifted him up or touched his body, they would be ceremoniously unclean. And so that was a shameful thing because that is who you are. You are dirty. You are unclean. And for this priest and Levite, they passed by because it was too costly. It was too risky. Even for their own lives, right? That this bloody way was a place where their lives were at risk if they stopped. But these two, the people that were looked up to in their culture, did not consider this man a neighbor. As you continue to think about this, one commentator said this, for this priest, life was lived according to the codified system of do's and don'ts, of lesser and greater obligations, and of qualified and unqualified commandments. The priest was not simply indifferent and cruel, he was weighing the matter in terms of rabbinic legislation, which had largely forgotten the injunction of the Old Testament that the Lord loved mercy more than sacrifice. What this commentator is saying is 
It wasn't like because it's black and white where it's like, well, he was just being an absolutely horrible person. No, he waited out. And at the end of it, he prioritized the law more than mercy for both of these men. And now as this lawyer is listening to this story, a priest comes by first. A Levite comes next. The, the obvious conclusion of who would come next would be a Jewish layperson. Think about that. As these hearers listen to this story, it was obvious, okay, a priest, no. Levite, no. Well, then obviously next would be a Jewish layperson. But is it? No. Jesus throws this curveball out of nowhere and read here in verse 20, uh, 30, uh, 34, oh no, 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. We, we get lost and don't understand the significance and surprise of Jesus telling this portion of the story. Because for a Jewish person, a Samaritan was the, like, they were the dregs of the earth. Literature in that time called them pigs and swine. They were the most hated people on earth. Now pause there for a moment for us. Who are the most hated people right now in your life? If I could be just blunt and with where we are politically, is it Donald Trump? Is it Pelosi? Is it the neighbor who has a Trump sticker on their bumper car or on their bumper? Is it those with blue and black white flags? Who are the people that are absolutely hated and despised today right now? It could be racial because of maybe your own experience growing up. There are reasons for you and why you feel justified and why you would consider them swine or pigs. This is what Jesus was driving home. That's how significant and poignant Jesus' reason for bringing the Samaritan into the story was. They were the worst of the worst. They wished hell upon a Samaritan's life. And this is who Jesus decides to use in his story that would show compassion and save this dying man's life, most likely a Jew. How did he exhibit compassion tangibly here? Think about it. Look at verse 34 and 35. He bound up his wounds with oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. He took care of him. The next day he gave two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and if the cost actually is more than what I've given you, I will pay you more. 
And what you see is there is friendship. There is advocacy. There's emergency medical treatment. There's transportation. There's financial help. There's follow-up. This is the kind of compassion, visible compassion, that this Samaritan who was hated upon would show to someone that was an enemy. And it's in this situation, in verse 36, Jesus concludes by saying, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And what does this, what does this lawyer, this Jewish lawyer say? He can't even say the word Samaritan. He, he musters enough courage because he knows the right answer. He gives it. And he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. What's the point of Jesus telling this story besides trying to answer the question, who is my neighbor? I think churches and ministries will look at this passage and they'll say, well, this is how we are called to be a good neighbor. Be a friend, advocate, transportation, money, all these things. And they'll use this as a framework for what it means to show mercy and compassion. And that's good. Others will look at this and say, well, this is how we're supposed to do mercy ministry. And this is how the diaconate or deacons should look like in the work of serving those inside the church and outside the church. And that's good too. We should be doing that. And we should be looking at it in that sense. But could there be something deeper here that Jesus is actually getting at? And I think there is, and it's this. What Jesus is actually getting at is that he is showing us that this is actually impossible. It's impossible. Jesus is humbling the lawyer and showing him that no one can do this, including this lawyer. Jesus gives him this standard that will absolutely crush his pride. He wants to feel justified, and what Jesus does through this story is crush him. You can't do this. No one can. And it's in that sense that Jesus ultimately says that I am that good Samaritan. Jesus identifies himself as a Samaritan, and we are actually that helpless, dying man on the side of the road. That is Jesus' point. And we have to see that we, as half beaten and dead, we are the ones who have been graciously saved by Christ. It's when we were enemies, Christ still came and died for us. And it's when we begin to flip the story and realize the mercy and compassion that Christ has shown us, that is what Jesus wants to drive home. If you see that you have been saved graciously by someone who owes you the opposite, then you will look out into the world and do gospel neighboring to others. And that's where I think we get lost. We think we're just good, we're moral, we believe in humanism, that that itself will lead to a, a, to a culture and to a society that we will be able to truly be good neighbors like that. But is that true? 
I mean, think about this. We, in our time now, we pride ourselves in how progressive we are. We were just talking about this last night with a few of the officers that stuck around. But the lunchroom that I experienced in high school and junior high in the 90s, it was horrible. You had all the cliques. There was bullying. People, I mean, people would actually, back when I was a kid in elementary school, would take my milk money. And here we are, fast forward 30 years, and we pride ourselves on being, being progressive. We have anti-bullying things. We have all these great initiatives in schools. But the reality when you go into a high school lunchroom is that not much has changed. The same things and the angst that I experienced is still true today. Right, high school students? Amen? And so just because we're more progressive and because we put in these new initiatives thinking that we, we could pat ourselves on the back because we are, such, we are so much further advanced than others, the reality is not much has changed because when you look at the human heart and the condition, that doesn't change. And when you take that out from a microscopic level and you look at the macro level, I mean, if that is true, you would think our society and culture would be so much better, but there is still so much brokenness and so much pain I mean, the Michael Brown case has just opened up just a whole gamut of things and realizing how broken our society is when it comes to relationships and re or race relations. And the political climate that we're in is we have not progressed. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying it's not just more moral. It's not priding ourselves in these ethics and initiatives and all these humanistic sort of tendencies that we sort of adopt, yes, they're good, but they're temporary. And what Jesus is, uh, is saying is it's actually a heart issue. And until we realize, and this is what the gospel and this is what Christianity offers each and every single one of us, until we realize that we have been neighbors to the ultimate degree of sacrifice. Jesus did not risk his life like this good Samaritan. He gave his life up. And it's when we understand that kind of compassion and mercy, then and only then can we actually then neighbor people. Because we have been radically neighbored. And it's no longer just morals and behavior change. It is a life change that stirs up your heart to love people because you have understood that you were that broken person. You were the enemy of God, and yet he came and loved you, risked his life, gave it up, and gave us everything we need that is found in him. That is what neighboring looks like. If you look at this lawyer asking this question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells this story. But look what Jesus does to this lawyer at the end. He flips the question. Did you notice that? What does, Je what does Jesus ask him? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell? What he's saying is, lawyer, who has been a neighbor to you? Until we can answer that question, we cannot ultimately love people unconditionally like Christ. See that? We have to understand 
the gravity of Christ neighboring for us, the Good Samaritan neighboring for us, is when we can finally ask ourselves, who is my neighbor and who can I love? Who can I sacrifice my time and my life to? I'm just going to quickly here give just three applications as we reflect on this story. And first is, we need to pray. Last week we looked at prayer. And as we think about praying, who are those that we could be praying for? Those that you hate on the other side of the political line. Those that just get on your nerves. Your boss, your coworker. What does it look like for us to begin to pray for them? Praying for opportunities, for wisdom, for strength, for love, for courage. Secondly, what does it look like to actually do that work? There's a great quote here uh, from, there's a book out that is, is on sale called, called The Art of Neighboring. And we've been going through our ACE class. But in that book, uh, this is what this author says. He says, Loving our neighbor has become a metaphor for Christians. They are everyone and anyone, so we have lost the art of neighboring well. We define neighbor in the broadest terms. When we aim for everything, we hit nothing. Consequently, the great commandment turns into nothing more than a metaphoric love for our metaphoric neighbors, and our communities are changed, but only metaphorically. <laughs> I think that's very, like, I, that hit me. So what does it actually look like for us to invite people into our lives. And it's not just adding more time. I know we are a busy congregation. Young kids, work that demands 60 plus hours. But rather than adding, what does it look like to actually invite? Inviting someone into your schedule, not adding things onto your schedule. We all have to eat. So what does it look like to invite a neighbor over for a meal? We walk our dogs. We run and we walk around our neighborhoods. What does it mean to be intentional, to be in that flow of life and being able to recognize the people around you? I shared this before um, when I preached on the Good Samaritan many years ago, but this idea of I need sugar, we have lost the art of the I need sugar neighboring, right? When's the last time you actually went to a neighbor's house and said, I, lo I don't have any more sugar, or I don't have some spice, can I get that? We just drive to Chinooks or Deerbergs and get what we need. But what does it look like for us to neighbor and actually ask, saying that I need things. I'm not self-dependent, self and I need others. And then things like, you know, the um, drive-in movie night. What does it look like then to bring people? We have scatterings and smatterings of, of uh, bringer events. What does it look like to neighbor people well? But you can't bring unless you are beginning to intentionally love people. And this brings, us to, brings me to the last application. But there's this idea of ulterior versus ultimate. And I think this is helpful for any of us who sort of struggle with this idea of like, well, am I just doing it out of like duty? Am I doing a bait and switch? Like I'm just inviting them over because I want them to become a believer? And I think this, this dichotomy is actually helpful. It's from Eric Swanson from To Transform a City. He says, ulterior, ulterior means something is intentionally kept concealed. An ulterior motive is usually manipulative. 
It's when we do or say one thing out in the open, but intend or mean another thing in private. But ultimate means the farthest point of a journey, right? I'm going to hit that ultimate place. An ultimate goal is an eventual point or a longed-for destination. Examples are when a person begins college hoping to become a doctor one day, or when a kid starts playing basketball with dreams of one day playing in the NBA. Those are ultimate goals. And I think this is, what he's, this is where he concludes, the ulterior motive in good neighboring must never be to share the gospel. The ultimate motive is just that, to share the story of Jesus and his impact on our lives. So what does that look like for us? And where I want to leave us is, who has neighbored you? And if you are a follower of Christ, meditate, focus, spend time understanding the gravity of what Christ has done for you. And out of that place, supernaturally, and by the Holy Spirit, we will be able to love people as Christ has called us to. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you for who you are, that in Jesus, he was the ultimate good Samaritan who not only risked his life, but gave it up for us. While we were enemies, he still died for us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, you would do your work in our hearts to understand the gravity of your love and your sacrifice and your mercy and compassion for each and every single one of us. So that that and only that would compel us to love people that we cannot love ourselves. That no moralistic law or ethic or initiative can do. But that by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would be able to love people as you have loved us. Lord, I ask that that would be true of us here at Restoration. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship, we have the opportunity to come to the table this morning. And what's so amazing is, you know, as I talked about Fred Rogers and as he shared that pool with Officer Clemens, that wasn't the last thing he did. You know what, you know what Fred Rogers did as they got out of the pool? He got a towel and began to dry Officer Clemens' feet. As I think about neighboring, it is the humility of Christ who washed the disciples' feet as dirty and it was only the job of a slave to do. Jesus did that for us. And here at the table, we are reminded of that in his humility and in his brokenness. He humbled himself, became a man, body broken, bloodshed, so that we might be able to be reconciled with God and experience true friendship, true love, true compassion. So this morning, this is what Christ offers you and me. As we reflect on the Good Samaritan, Christ being that for us,